This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that the federal sales tax on alcohol goes up every year? It was part of the 2017 federal budget. This year, though, things are, of course, different. But now the Canadian Chamber of Commerce wants to see a pause on that annual increase. They say restaurants and their customers are all in a cash cash crunch right now. So let's talk more about this. Now, Ryan Greer is their policy expert on this file, and he joins us now to talk more about what this new tax could potentially cost. Ryan, thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, first of all, what, how much of an increase are we talking about here? Well, it's... Um it's a very complex tax to understand for a few reason, a uh, few reasons, and that these excise duties are different depending on the volume that a producer makes, as well as the type of alcohol. So, um, one of the reasons it's it's really hard to to um, get governments and and get Canadians to understand this is it's a very complex formula. Um, but the the point of it is this: is that uh, it wasn't uncommon in the past for governments to raise these excise taxes or, or quote unquote, sin taxes as they were, but they would have to um, justify it and, and have a vote in Parliament. What changed in 2017 is is the government introduced a new mechanism that increases this tax every single year for all producers on April 1st, and it will continue to increase uh, well, essentially forever, unless we uh, unless the government pauses or, or repeals the measure. So do you feel that this would be a, a really helpful measure for businesses right now? Yeah, I, I think it would. I mean, uh, it was only a few weeks ago the prime minister was asked directly if he was considering any tax increases to pay for uh, a lot of the COVID spending that the federal government has had to um, introduce. And he said uh, unequivocally that no, um, it's the last thing that Canadians need right now. And and we agree, uh, and we would agree that the last thing our, our beleaguered uh, restaurant uh, and hospitality sector needs is to have the costs of, of alcoholic beverages for their for their businesses go up next April first. And so, that's exactly why we're saying uh, it's time to just put a pause on this for the moment. And, and in fact, we would we would propose that they just repeal the measure altogether. Um, automatic tax increases, I don't think, are anybody's idea of, of uh, good policy. When would this have come into effect? So this came into effect in 2017. At the time, the federal government increased uh, the excise duty on on beer, wine, and spirits by 2% uh, and then said, uh, we're also introducing this escalator rule, which means that it'll increase every single April 1st. So uh, it increased 2018, it increased 2019, uh, it increased this year right as the pandemic uh, was starting to to wreak havoc on our economy, and now it's scheduled to increase yet again uh, next April 1st. Now that can't be the only, you know, thing that you th- probably think would help, right? Restaurants and businesses uh, to get back into things uh, as for their pandemic recovery. Are there other measures as well that you think the government should be taking right now? Yes, absolutely. At the, at the Canadian Chamber, we've been in discussions with um, all of our contacts within the federal government and, and local chamber of commerce have been in touch with their members of parliament to, uh, to let the government know that they need to really have a growth mindset when it comes to uh, what they're looking at for their economic recovery plan. Obviously, we need to look closely at, at the benefits that are helping businesses and, and Canadians continue to get through uh, what has been a very difficult period. Uh, But what we've also said now is that the government needs to look at how they can use the tax system, the regulatory system, as well as targeted investments to really help increase, um, you know, productivity and and innovation in this country to make it easier uh, to to do business so that that companies that that have been through a real difficult period, uh, including our restaurant and bar industries, can can innovate, can look at new approaches to doing business uh, and can can grow and, and hopefully find new customers. Are there particular industries like the restaurant industry that you think should get extra support? Well, uh, it's clear that, uh, you know, as we now sort of slip into the fall, that there are some industries that have been absolutely hit the hardest by the pandemic. Uh, The restaurant and hospitality uh, industry is one. And uh, we we published some research uh, only a few weeks ago that showed that that upwards of 60 percent of all restaurants are in danger of closing within the next three months. Um, obviously, our travel, tourism, and hosp- uh, hospitality industries, so hotels, airlines, uh, and others in that business have also continued to be severely impacted. Um, obviously, people are not traveling at nearly the same volumes. Uh, the summer tourism season uh, was was lost for, for most operators. So uh, I, I think it is important, although the government tried very hard to be, um, you know, very equal in how it supported various industries that impacted. Now we have to look at which sectors are continuing to be hurt the most and how we can ensure that entrepreneurs and, and business owners and their employees are, are not left behind. All right, Ryan, thank you for your time.
Thanks so much for having me. That's Ryan Greer. He's the Senior Director of Transportation and Infrastructure Policy with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And one of the things that they are targeting right now is uh, little little things that can be done to help out some of the industries that are hardest hit by the pandemic, uh, including restaurants, right? So they would like the government to either pause or get rid of that annual alcohol sales tax increase, which was put in place in the 2017 federal budget. You may not have noticed it, but but restaurants and you know bars certainly have. Uh, so we'll see what if that'll be part of the economic recovery plan that the federal government uh, announces in the coming weeks. This is Mornings with Simi. What started in BC about six weeks or so ago is now a trend right across the country and not in a good way at all. It's cases of COVID-19 that are on the rise just about everywhere. More than 100 cases in BC yesterday, 171 in Alberta, more than 300 in both Quebec and Ontario. So what is behind this trend? Is every province facing something similar here and why is that? Well, we're going to talk more about that right now with the help of our next guest. It's Sumon Chakrabarty, the infectious disease specialist based in Mississauga. Sumon, thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Now, given that you study this and you're a specialist in this, does this disturb you when you see these numbers rising across the country? Yeah, I mean, nobody likes seeing this. Um, You know, on one hand, it is certainly expected that, you know, once we open up things more, uh, there's more uh, personal contact, you're going to see this happening. But yeah, I think that what's happened, uh, the trend is accelerating a bit more than we're comfortable with. And it's important now for us to dance with the virus and, you know, put in some restrictions to kind of get this back under control. I love the way you put that. It's important to try to dance with the virus. Like, what do you mean by that? So we have this uh, concept we call the hammer and the dance. So the hammer was kind of what we did at the very beginning in March. It was mainly around the country where you had to basically shut everything down to get the amount of transmission down as quickly as possible. And that's what we did. And it was successful in varying degrees, but it was ultimately successful all over the country. And the dance phase, now once you start to open things up, you expect there to be transmission. You expect there to be outbreaks. But the chance, what you do is you kind of dance with it. You sometimes release restrictions. You sometimes put them back to try to keep the amount of uh, transmission low enough that everything is manageable. Unfortunately, it looks like it's you know, spiked uh, across the country, especially in BC, and that's why you're seeing some more restrictions slowly being put back to get right. this back under control. Is that because perhaps people, you know, they were tired of the hammer, as you put it, <laughs> and they just wanted everything to go back to being a good time, and it's up to health officials, really, to kind of find that balance of how much can be opened safely? That's exactly right. And I do agree that even I'm tired of this. It's been nine, ten months now. And I think that especially in certain areas, you know, certain age groups, we've noticed that it makes sense. There's a fatigue there. And I understand why people are kind of wanting to go back to their, their previous, you know, normal, normal, but it's tough. The virus is still with us. So what do you think is really going to make a difference here? I've been reading as well about how some countries have rapid testing, you know, test results in half an hour kind of a thing. Will that make a difference? I think it, it has it, uh, definitely the uh, potential of doing a big impact if we have that. Right now, the, the Canadian government is vetting this to see if we can uh, use it in the population. I do think it has a lot of potential, and it might help, especially with all these lineups around the country at the testing centers, which are you know, rapidly being overwhelmed. I think that's another big concern people have is that why weren't we ready for, you know, when we did open things up and did start to get more tests to really test as many people as possible? Well, actually, the thing is that right now, it might be almost too much of a good thing, is that uh, right now, we obviously wanted to have a lot of broad testing, but what's kind of happened is that we're also seeing a lot of low-yield testing, so people that have no symptoms, no uh, you know high-risk contact, and for example, I'm going to the cottage, I want to get a test and make sure it's negative before I go, right. uh, and I'm not saying that uh, you know people are doing that because the government did say, go ahead and, and uh, get tested, mm. but I think we do need to reel things in a bit and focus where the high-yield and you know, high risk testing will be. And what what areas would that be? What would constitute a high yield, high risk test? So let's say somebody who has symptoms of, you know, a sore throat, fever, shortness of breath, that type of thing, or somebody who's been gotten a notification from the Canada app, or somebody who's been in contact with somebody proven to be um, uh, COVID-19 in a workplace. These are all situations where I think it's very important for us to test. But a lot of the low-yield ones, you know what, I just want to make sure I don't have COVID. I just want to make sure I'm going before I go to uh, see my friends uh, downtown. These are the types of tests that are actually quite numerous and uh, are uh, adding to the, the bulk 
help that we're seeing that's overwhelming the labs. Right. Are, are people taking that seriously enough, do you think, Simone? That whole idea of, you mentioned the sore throat. And I think of so many, I've heard and read so many stories now, people, oh, with a sore throat, but they still went out. And it turns out that was also the, you know, COVID-19. Absolutely. And think about this too. Like now, if you're looking at these, you know, four hour lineups in some places in Ontario, where I, I can speak the best for Ontario, is that, you know, if you, I don't want to go there in a lineup for four hours and wait. That's, a, you know, it's understandable, but that's why we have to really, really address this quickly so we can kind of get this back on track. Okay. And so how do we do that then? And in your, in your opinion, how do we get this back on track? I think one of the things that we can do is kind of change the messaging in terms of, you know, who we want to be able to uh, come to the testing and prioritize those tests. The other thing that uh, we're talking about in Ontario is that maybe kind of having testing done in other places, for example, outside of the hospitals. Uh, they talked about the pharmacies, for example. And what we could maybe do is decant some of these more low-risk tests. If you have no symptoms, you know, all that stuff, you go to the pharmacy instead and you have the high-risk type of uh, criteria come to the hospital. And that's one way we can kind of keep the testing going, but also, you know, prioritize the the ones that we were talking about. Because you're right, when it comes to getting a test, there's so many different categories of people, aren't there? You may know somebody who had COVID-19, but you yourself don't have symptoms, you would still want to test at that point. That's right, especially if it was a close contact. So, for example, if I'm in a workplace and I'm 10 meters away and I never talk to you, that's different than somebody who works side by side in a factory. And these are the types of things that we really, really want to be able to detect. So testing really does sound like the key at this point in order for us to find that balance. Absolutely. Testing, tracing, and the, you know, the contact tracing, you know, it has been fairly good in most places, but you know, it's starting to get overwhelmed as well, especially in the bigger centers in Canada. And do you think, do we need to target the message as well to younger people? Because clearly right across the country, we have seen that younger people wanting to have a good time has also contributed to this. Definitely. And, and, you know, I've always said one thing is that, you know, condescension, finger wagging, scolding, that's not helpful, especially. And many of the the people in the age group are very, very um, good with the rules. I mean, it's just that there's some cultural events, house parties, indoor things that are are, uh, leading to this. And yes, these uh, places should be targeted. And I think that behavioral psychology and this type of messaging is very important here. All right, Simon, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. That is Sumon Chakrabarty, who's the infectious disease specialist based in Mississauga, talking about the rise in cases right across the country and what it is that we can do to essentially improve those numbers. Now, if you want to weigh in with your thoughts, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, I'm excited to talk about this next topic with our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. You know I'm a big SNL fan. Yes, I know you are. I have watched that show for years. (laughs) Since the mid-1980s, and I'm talking religiously. So since I was about 12 or 13 years old, I have watched it like religiously Saturday nights. That's what I do is I watch SNL. The whole family does. Well, and I I got to admit, I'm not a huge SNL fan. It's fallen off a little bit for me over the years. But one thing I really love is when they do their political characters. That always, it's usually the perfect fit. I mean, remember when they did uh, Sarah Palin? How funny was that? Oh, she was, Uh, Tina Fey was so good. Tina Fey, that's right. And uh, didn't Will Ferrell used to do George Bush? George W. Bush and Amy Poehler used to do Hillary Clinton, which was so funny too. And, you know, I was very skeptical when they brought in um, Alec Baldwin to do Donald Trump because they used to have Daryl Hammond do Donald Trump. And I thought that was the best Donald Trump impersonation I had ever seen. But I stand corrected because Alec Baldwin was also very funny. Now comes the news that they have picked their Joe Biden. Exactly. So who could you imagine playing Joe Biden? I think well, they used they to have selected is perfect. Well, they well they used to have um well one Woody Harrelson played him once during the debates oh, last season which was hilarious. They also regularly had um Jason Sudeikis do it. Oh. He would come okay. back and guest and just show up and be Joe Biden and he was very funny. And uh now they've chosen Jim Carrey. Yeah, can you believe it? Jim Carrey is going to be playing Joe Biden on the upcoming season of SNL, which starts this October. So I guess they're going to be doing five consecutive live or or new shows. So October 3rd, October 10th, October 17th, the 24th, and then the 31st. So 
all of the month of October will be that new programming. I hope that we see lots of Jim Carrey. Oh, yes, I think you Joe will, right? Biden. Because that'll be election crunch time. That'll be they'll be doing the debate. Yeah. So we're going to see a lot of Jim Carrey and Alec Baldwin together doing this stuff. And you know what? I I trust Lauren Michaels at this point because he's been doing this for so long. Another good thing, if you're an SNL fan, is that they apparently announced that the entire cast is going to be back for this year. And you know that's actually only happened once before. On, in all the what almost fifty years that that show has been on the air, really. So when you say entire cast, what do you? How many people? That means are we well, here? you know, we're talking about how many people they have. Fifteen, something like that. Fifteen oh. people, but fifteen, twenty. But it's not very often. It's quite rare that every single person returns and they don't add anybody new for the new year. Oh, I so see. So usually there's like somebody leaves. Everybody thought Kate McKinnon was going to be leaving, and then you know they bring in somebody new and they kind of promote people and things get shuffled around right. in the off season. This time for the first time in many years, it's actually everybody is coming back. Well, I mean, it's been hard to find jobs, I think, I in the so. pandemic. I'm sure there's not too many comedians who are looking to uh, to change their careers right. at this point in time. Interestingly enough, too, they're actually going to be returning with a live studio audience, at least a limited really? studio audience, but a live studio audience at the same time. So when you're watching it on TV, you know, are you going to hear just a couple chuckles in the crowd or is it going to be a good roaring laugh? It'll be interesting to kind of watch that as well. You know, those are some of the, well, they were before the pandemic hit, some of the hardest tickets to get to a live taping of. Right. Yeah. People have to line up for days, it, at least 24 hours, days. Yeah. Yeah. You start on the Wednesday, apparently. Really? And there's, yeah. There was like a bracelet system too. So you had to be there on the Wednesday and then they gave out the bracelets, you know, so you had to line up for that and then you have to come back and then you want a good seat. So you still, have to, so you really, you end up spending like a good 36 hours in that lineup. And even then it's not guaranteed. And I thought, man, can you imagine going to New York to try wanting to do this, but you waste three days of your vacation just trying to get in to see Saturday Night Live? I was just going to say, I've heard of people doing this before where, you know, they go on vacation and they want to go to one of these big shows and you know, Saturday Night Live. So, you know, you line up to get the tickets, but I didn't realize people were lining up basically like throughout crazy. the duration of their entire vacation to do this. I mean, what do you do with the people who are with you? Okay, mom, you wait in line. I'm going to go no. with dad to see the Statue of Liberty. And then you know, apparently we'll you had to be off. there too. Like the, you, there was no, you couldn't pay somebody to stand in line. You can't sell those tickets, nothing. It has to be you with the bracelet. So it was Oof. just so hard that I was like, oh, this is never going to happen. And yet some shows you can just walk by. I was, I remember being in New York one time and we were out for a walk and we walked by and they were on the sidewalk recruiting people to come in and watch a taping of the Wendy Williams show. Like, come oh, on in, Wendy come Williams. watch a taping of the Wendy Williams show. And I was like, no, no, I don't think I, think I'll skip that one. But thanks very much. We'll pay you, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's exciting. Jim Carrey will be on SNL. And listen, we can't go down there anyway to watch it because the border is essentially closed. And do we really want to go down there? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the other side of it anyways. You know, we couldn't go down there and see Jim Carrey in person anyways. <laughs> or line up for days if we wanted to to get those exclusive tickets. Now, it's interesting because the border is actually, well, I shouldn't say it's set to reopen, but the agreement that is keeping it closed expires next Monday, so September 21st. I don't think there's a, a chance in, in heck that they're going to be reopening that border on September 21st. And Reuters Canada was actually getting a little bit of inside intel from both Washington and Ottawa sounds like the border will remain closed until at least the end of November, so past American Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that comes as too big of a surprise for most people. There are very few reasons, I think, at this point to open up the border to anything but non-essential yeah. travel. I do think of our friends in Point Roberts. I know that they've been struggling mm -hmm. even when we talked earlier this week on the show about what the winter forecast is supposed to be like across Canada and in BC, they're calling for some really wintry, nasty, stormy weather. And I thought about those people who have cabins in Point Roberts not being able to winterize them. Yeah, I know. So many issues there to deal with. I can't even go across the border to buy my Halloween candy like I usually do, but oh, <laughs> oh these things, right? Anyway, thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The province is taking action to help slow the overdose crisis. And soon, more health professionals like registered and psychiatric nurses will be able to prescribe safer drugs to people at risk. 
That is Global News anchor Nitu Garchi yesterday after the province outlined changes to the Safe Drug Program. We wanted to break those changes down a little bit more with the help of our next guest. It's Garth Mullins, host of the podcast Crackdown, where he explores the lived experiences of drug users and analyzes policy decisions. And he joins us now. Garth, thanks for being with us. Hey, Simi. Thanks for having me. Now, what did you think of that decision yesterday that now more people can prescribe, you know, safe drug alternatives? Well, I mean, on the on the one hand, I was glad to hear it. So the reason so many people are dying is because of a contaminated drug supply. And and that means that the rules make it so that you can't access um, a pharmaceutical version of what you'd be doing. So everything that people are trying to do on the street, there's kind of a version of at, at the pharmacy. And it's just the rules that prohibit people from accessing that, that uh, you know, those kind of medications and... Uh, you know, so I'm glad to see that nurses, in addition to doctors or, uh, you know, psychiatric nurses and RNs can uh, prescribe the, you know, this the small list of drugs that are are used for the treatment now of um, of uh, when you have a, when you're wired opiates. Do you think this will help? I mean, the, the end result here is they want to make a dent, right, in the number of opioid overdoses. Will this help? You know, I think so. Um, it's a small step. I was interested to see that it came as an order, a uh, public health order from Bonnie Henry. And uh, I didn't really realize that she could do that or that she, they were willing to have that happen on the overdose crisis because we haven't really seen a public health order like that. It means that you kind of don't have to wait for Ottawa and every politician in the country to agree. You can kind of just move ahead with things on an emergency basis. Bonnie Henry has also suggested things like decriminalization of uh, drug possession in the past. And so I guess she could do that, too. You know, she could make those kind of uh, orders. Right. So you're saying if you can do this, do more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, I'm glad to see it, but it's amazingly late and uh, it, it shows what is possible. Do you think, though, there is now, I, I've noticed a lot more discussion about this in the last couple of months, about those opioid overdose numbers. Do you think people are, are waking up to the, oh, yeah, there is there is that other public health crisis? I hope so, you know, but um, we've been living with this for five years, at least uh, me and the community that I'm part of has. And for me, this is actually uh, my second overdose crisis. You know, I used heroin all the way through the publicly declared overdose crisis in the 90s and I'm on methadone now but um, it's that's a lot of years and we've been as uh, activists been sort of raising this exact demand for me personally for 22 years and uh, that's a lot of people uh, dead between now and then. Is there not enough take up on this right? I mean this we thought we were going to make some progress the numbers in BC haven't come down what needs to happen here to get more people to use these safer supplies? Well, it's it's really not just on the drug users. It's it's on the people who have the prescription pads. So the big barrier was, uh, you know, when this policy for these kind of safer alternatives came out in March, um, a lot of doctors just didn't want to do it. You know, every day I hear from people who are trying, you know, uh, drug users who are trying to get onto these kind of programs. They just can't find a doctor that's willing to do it. And so part of this is the province is even conceding that point and saying, okay, well, we're going to let some nurses do it too. Uh, so, I mean, I hope that the implementation doesn't fail in the same way. You know, I hope that we don't find some something in the system or something about the prescribing by mm-hmm. nurses that, that also uh, pre- presents barriers, you know. I'll have to check back in with you. Garth, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. That is Garth Mullins, host of the podcast Crackdown. It's about drugs and drug policy. Uh, Responding to the news yesterday that BC is now allowing nurses, psychiatric nurses, registered nurses to prescribe safe drug alternatives to help battle the opioid overdose crisis in the hopes that maybe this will also help put a dent in those numbers. They've been trying a lot of stuff. Could this be something that also works? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the ways in which governments are trying to help businesses right now. We know the federal government, anyway, is trying to help kickstart some local economies with funding that is going to like local business groups to be administered by those local business groups. In fact, Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie made the announcement yesterday that included $50,000 to be administered by the Surrey Board of Trade. So what are they going to do with that? How will they support local businesses? Well, the CEO, Anita Huberman, joins us now to talk about that. Anita, thanks for being here. 
Good morning. So what kind of work will the Board of Trade do with this money? Well, it's meant to enhance our existing Surrey Pandemic Business Centre that we put in place since the pandemic started to be that uh, concierge of connections. But uh, more specifically, as it relates to this funding yesterday, uh, it is to reach out and uh, provide training and enhancement and connection services uh, to at least 600 female entrepreneurs, 300 youth entrepreneurs, and 75 Indigenous entrepreneurs. And Indigenous because uh, Surrey has the highest urban Aboriginal population within BC. So tell me about some of what you've been hearing from these businesses and like, what kind of support do business owners want? Well, it depends on their industry. It depends on the type of business. Some are really hurting. Uh, some are needing that government support in order to go through that uh, closure that we went through for three, four months. Uh, some are needing connections to uh, human resources, uh, to labor. Uh, others are needing uh, access to capital. Uh, others are needing uh, just ways to innovate uh, and to speak to uh, different connections and to network in order to think differently about their, their business. Um, and, and some, you know, and we're still getting this uh, through our business center, uh, businesses coming into our office wanting to start a business, but still needing that support. So through this funding, uh, we are also able to hire a full-time temporary economic development coordinator as well uh, to provide that additional service, so that human connection uh, that businesses need instead of just going onto a website. Right. That, that's the hard part, I guess, for businesses right now is that it's still so uncertain. Are a lot of businesses, you know, the ones that you've talked to, are they trying to open? Do they remain closed? Like, what is that situation like? Well, for the most part, many have opened in some way or they remain open to delivering services while staff are still working from home. Um, some are just uh, waiting until early next year uh, to see what the second wave of the virus is going to look like. It really depends on the, the type of business or manufacturers. Uh, we have the most number of manufacturers within British Columbia and Surrey. Uh, they were able to stay open uh, to deliver the goods that we needed uh, locally, nationally, and internationally and, uh, and go through that border, uh, which uh, we're on in Surrey. Um, but um, if you're in retail, you know, there are some retail businesses that have shut down to me, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, some restaurants have shut down. They are, they're making difficult decisions. Those are the industries, hospitality, et cetera, uh, that, are, that are having and will uh, make these difficult decisions. Like we hear a lot about what Vancouver is doing in terms of, you know, restaurants and patios and all of that kind of stuff. But what is that like in Surrey? Are they going to extend that that patio, uh, the rules as well? What kind of support has there been for the restaurant industry? Well, our temporary patio program, unfortunately, was very complicated and, and somewhat costly for many So only uh, 12 uh, of the restaurants took advantage of the program offered by the city of Surrey. Uh, Whether or not there's, yeah, whether or not there's an extension of it uh, into the winter. Um, I, I'm not sure at this point. Uh, we know in Montreal, for example, uh, you know, they're, they're very innovative. They're restaurants. Uh, they, some of them remain open uh, during that, that horrible cold that they have. Uh, but they're, they're quite innovative in what they do. And, and restaurants will need to think that way to ensure physical distancing uh, as we enter that cold season. Uh, is there, though, an appetite, do you think, in Surrey to go back to those restaurants? Like, how, how are restaurant owners coping? Well, uh, the, the many restaurants, if they have the physical distancing ability um, and they're, they're able to have 50% capacity, many are, are just coping. You know, they're, they're open. Some are doing really well. Um, and others, they just can't open. Uh, because uh, the the floor space ratio is just way too small. It doesn't make sense. Uh, But uh, the temporary patio or or having some type of patio has been able to help uh, within Surrey. So, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult for that industry. 
Sounds like it's just difficult all around these days. Anita, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simi. It's Anita Haberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, talking about the ways in which the Board of Trade has been trying to support local businesses in Surrey. They've also got this grant now from the federal government, $50,000, to also reach out and help and do more. But, you know, as Anita pointed out, so many different industries need different kinds of support. It has been uh, incredibly challenging. If you're a Surrey business owner, you know, weigh in with your thoughts. I'd, I'd love to hear from restaurant owners in Surrey in particular to find out how they are doing in light of the very different temporary patio situation that you've got out there. What's business been like? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We were just talking about pop-up patios. The situation in Surrey is very different than what we have seen in Vancouver. As Anita Huberman told us, only 12 restaurants in Surrey were able to go through the much more difficult permitting process in that city to make them happen. And yet in Vancouver, they have been very popular. So will they be extended? So we're going to talk about right now with our Nikki Reitmeyer, who joins us. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. My reaction was the same as yours. You know, I'm listening to my radio at home and I heard Anita say only 12 restaurants in Surrey have taken advantage of this pop-up patio program. I thought, what? 12? You see them all over the place in, in North Vancouver and in Vancouver, for sure. Yeah, I know, and I'm surprised. And so they're blaming the, the permitting process, saying that it was just too difficult and convoluted. Whereas I think in other jurisdictions like North Vancouver and Vancouver, they were just like, you want to do this? Do this and go yeah. ahead. But people seem to really like them. People seem to be enjoying them. You know, they are nice through the summer months. I know that Delta's voted to extend their patio program, as have North Vancouver and Vancouver. And I think that a large part of that is due to the popularity of them. When you drive down the street, you usually see people sitting out there enjoying the, I was going to say sunshine, but I guess enjoying the smoky weather instead. And they have been a really nice source of Mm -hmm. additional business for restaurants, for bars, where people are maybe a little bit more hesitant to be going inside. Right. they're being this program's being extended through the winter which will they be as popular through the winter time i just can't imagine seeing people sitting on a patio on the curb in the middle of winter i don't know i i can't picture that happening either but you know some people might like it as a way to do that are your dogs okay is everything okay <laughs> <My dog. laughs> this is okay so this, this is not happened girl. charlie please mom's on the radio charlie <laughs> It's like, how many months have you been working from home and this has never happened? So what's happening right now is I have a friend who's staying with me and uh, bless her, she's much more motivated than I am. So she got up this morning and she went out for a workout. So she just walked back in the door again. But uh, Charles, who's a small Jack Russell Terrier, emphasis on Terrier, uh, has heard her come home. And now and now he's having a full-blown meltdown because, Mom, oh my goodness, can you believe it? An intruder has walked through the door. I'm trying to save your life. And he has currently gone to hide under the bed. So, oh, so that's now why he's we scared. Silence. Yes, silence once again. Well, you know, Charles is an exceptional uh, dog. I guess what he's used to is just seeing somebody <laughs> walking around in jogging pants and lying in bed all morning. Is that That's what he's used to. Yeah, that's exactly right. So who's this other person walking? Who's this motivated person that came back from the gym? Okay, good to know. All right, so we'll just go back to our discussion here. We were talking about (laughs) patios and the temporary patios and whether or not people will actually use them through the winter because the city of Vancouver, the council there, voted to extend that. The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association head is Charles Gauthier. He shared some comments from restaurant owners about what their experience has been like. We had a comment section on the survey, and I'll just read them verbatim. Uh, The temporary patio has greatly benefited our business during the COVID-19 relaunch. Given the current situation, it will likely take years for the economy to recover. It will be great for the city, or if the city allowed patios to remain permanently with the added enhancements. Uh, Another respondent said, the patios are a huge success. Another respondent said, this is essential for the survival of my business at this point. Okay, so it sounds like they got their wish. This is going to happen. But that's my question to you, Nikki. So in the month of November, when it is cold and it is gray and it is raining, are you going to sit on a patio outside? No, I couldn't imagine anything worse. I hate being cold and wet. I don't want to be sitting on a patio as a car drives by and splashes me with slush. Oh, yeah, that's I never thought about that because I was thinking, oh, they'll have it covered. They'll put the umbrellas up. They'll have the heaters, I'm sure. But you're right. Cars driving by and splashing you, nah, not great. 
But the important thing here is that the cities are showing that they're willing to work with restaurants to make accommodations and that businesses have this option if they can make it work for their patrons and if they can make it work for their location. So ultimately, well, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical as to how popular they'll be. I'm glad to see cities doing this because it shows that they're willing to make these types of accommodations to assist businesses through this really, really tough time. Yeah. And we don't know, right? They might be very popular. We had a story in the news run uh, this morning about how those outdoor patio heaters are now the new toilet paper. Really? Yeah. They're, they're sold out everywhere. Hilarious. Okay, so yeah, you, I mean, you never know what could happen. And, you know, I heard too that patio chairs were going like, they were going like crazy when these pop-up patios first became a thing. So, you know, the, the popularity of them has really been taken off and, and I'm glad to see it. We'll see what happens. All right, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Say bye to Charles for us. I will. <laughs> That's our Nikki Reitmeyer there. Uh, we're talking about those patios, the outdoor ones, the, the new ones, the temporary ones, being extended now uh, for several months. Vancouver City Council voted on that last night. Would you use one of those? Would you go to a restaurant in, you know, November and choose to sit in the, those new outdoor spaces there? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, if you live in Surrey, then you know there's a lot going on right now. It seems like the police transition dominates the discussion. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the pace of development was the real hot topic. For a long time now, I think many Surrey residents have felt that there's just too much development at the expense of building the amenities of their communities. Things like community centres, libraries, having enough parks and green spaces for people to enjoy. It was a very hot topic in the last municipal election when Doug McCallum promised more, quote, smart development, whatever that means. Well, this week, even though residents haven't had a lot of access to the community centres they do have, some substantial housing projects were approved by Surrey City Council. So, once again, all of those concerns about development and the lack of infrastructure being raised once again. We wanted to talk more about this. Joining us is Mike Bola, President of the Cloverdale Community Association. Mike, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having us. What did you think about the decision to go ahead with some of these big projects? Well, I'm not surprised. We're, we, we've, we know that Mayor and Council have been approving almost every development project that's been proposed. Um, and a majority of these are being held in downtown core of, uh, of Surrey there by City Hall, where these high-rises are coming in. So when the mayor talks about these $1 billion, $1 billion projects, that's where a majority of these are taking place. But we as an association have been seeing quite a bit of it happening in Cloverdale, up, mainly up in the Clayton Heights area. Um, you know, during this COVID time here, we've been busy with developers contacting us virtually over the phone or, you know, sending us emails saying, hey, I got this project. I want to, you know, get this thing moving forward. And I don't know, you know, what what's behind it, but it seems like, you know, because of everything being switched over to online council meetings, a lot of things are just being pushed through here. And uh, we're not surprised. Um, we were hopeful that the uh, there was going to be some kind of pause to development and let infrastructure catch up, as as what Mayor McCallum had said and during his election time that he was going to promise to do smart development. But we haven't seen any of that happen here in Cloverdale. And not only that, didn't Cloverdale have an ice rink that was supposed to happen? Well, yeah, that's a part of another problem that we've uh, been trying to fight. Uh, you know, again, that caught us off guard right after the election. Uh, we heard about this. Um, that was something we spearheaded back in 2014-15. Um, and, uh, you know, that got cancelled for no reason other than citing that the soil was unstable. Um, but again, we know that there was professionals who were paid to do the soil assessment. So, yeah. That was one infrastructure project that got cancelled. Uh, the Clayton Community Center, which was uh, delayed recently, um, they that was already in, under construction prior to this council coming in. So there is nothing that this mayor and council has have have done for our so our our community here regarding infrastructure. But we've seen a lot of development being pushed through. So it sounds like you're just right back to where you were a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, yeah, we're just uh, business as usual, uh, and, you know, we have to work with the developers because it's not the developer's fault or the city staff. City staff, I've spoken to a lot of the city staff members, and they've said, we haven't got any direction from any mayor and council that there's going to be a pause in development. We're, we've been told that continue on as business as usual. So, um, you know, why should we end up pushing back to developers? Developers are within their right to, uh, you know, develop. So 
we are working with them. Uh, it's better for us to work with them rather than just let them go for a free-for-all and then, you know, overcrowding things and whatnot is what usually happens when you don't get involved. So we've been successful with a lot of the projects. It's just that we're a little bit frustrated with how things have been playing out here in Cloverdale. Um, there is no infrastructure going in. Um, and uh, and we're not expecting anything anytime soon. Well, Mike, what do you think the community there needs? A huge amount of growth, and I know because I've gone through there and it looks nothing like what it looked like when I was growing up there. Uh, but what does the community need to make it more livable, would you say? Well, so, you know, we have, we have developments that are happening. They're mostly townhouses and, and single-family houses are very minimal. Like, they're not, it's not affordable anymore, so a lot of uh, condos and townhouses are going in. Um, but we need a lot of, uh, we need a lot more parks. Uh, you know, we have the Cloverdale Athletic Park. We have one in Clayton Heights there. But it's not just enough. You know, the skating rinks, I know not everybody uh, is, 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 is into ice, uh, ice skating or whatnot, but that's another business revenue, and there's a shortage of ice compared to other cities. If you compare yourself to Abbotsford, Abbotsford has more ice than Surrey right now. Um, so, um, you know, there's not just ice. There's also the, um, you know, we had the swimming pool here. That's a, right. the outdoor uh, swimming pool. There's a demand for an indoor swimming pool here. And a lot of people are saying that we have to drive down to Fleetwood, uh, up to Surrey, uh, you know, Fleetwood, uh, the Surrey complex one, which that's is a ways fine. To go. But that's a ways to go from Cloverdale all the way up Fraser Highway just to go swimming. Right. And, and the other thing is, is that that, that pool is always crowded. It is overcrowded. I used to take my kids there, and I can tell you right now, we used to stand in line just to get into the showers. It's so busy there. So there's a need for more infrastructure in spreading it out, not just saying, okay, here's for Cloverdale, here's for, you know, Fleetwood. It's for everybody in Surrey. But we just, we have a lot more land on our fairgrounds that can accommodate that kind of stuff. So there's more demand here for that kind of stuff. There's a demand for a track and field. We haven't seen that happening yet. Um, we don't have a track and field anywhere here where we can, you know, where seniors want to go and just go for walks in a, in a closed area. How much of a problem is this going to be then? You talk about a couple of years from now, like what are kids supposed to do? Where are they supposed to go? How do you keep them occupied? Well, you know, parents are driving them around. That's what's happening. Uh, parents have to take them to, to the areas where they want to go for, for, you know, for parks and, you know, and sports and all that. There's nothing that's local here that they can easily go to or take public transport. Um, you know, that's, that's another whole topic that, uh, that fell apart. Uh, based on false promises, and which everybody knew, you know, uh, kids can't go on their own anywhere because there's not enough buses or not enough uh, other tra- transportation. All right, Mike, I have a feeling we're going to be talking more about that with you. So thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mike Bola, president of the Cloverdale Community Association, talking about Surrey City Council continuing to approve projects and still no big infrastructure projects that are being approved either to go along with the increase in the population that these projects will bring. Remember all those ones that were promised? Well, they were put on hold, some of them because of the pandemic, some of them for budgetary issues. You're going to have the same problem in a couple of years uh, with no pools, no ice rinks, no parks for people to go to. If you live in the area, you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's a new conservation area in the Pemberton Valley for you to enjoy, actually. Big announcement came yesterday. It's 87 hectares of just pristine wilderness. It's soon going to be available to the public, but how it all came together is also a really interesting part of the story. So to talk more about that, Nancy Newhouse joins us from the Nature Conservancy of Canada, their regional VP. Nancy, thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. Now, what is so unique and special about this area? Well, this particular property is one of the few areas that's still in its natural state in the Pemberton area, and it's really important for a lot of different wildlife species. Uh, there's grizzly bears that uh, roam through there. There are salmon, uh, songbirds. There's even uh, red-legged frogs. So, you know, everything from the small to the very large um, we're actually finding there, and it's, it's a spectacularly beautiful area as well. So how long has this been going on, the, the kind of effort to preserve some of this? Well, I mean, all of, all of our work takes a long, long time. Uh, this particular project has been in the making for the last few years, uh, but the Nature Conservancy of Canada has been working uh, in British Columbia for over 50 years, 
and so it uh, it takes a lot of planning and an investment to to be able to get to the final stage of securing these really important properties. And what does that take, Nancy? Like, it's great to have the idea of saying, you know, this area should be preserved. <laughs> but I, what is that journey like? Uh, well, it's really exciting for one thing. It's it's uh, a job that we all absolutely love and believe is incredibly important. Our our vision as the Nature Conservancy of Canada is that we have a world in which Canadians conserve nature in in all of its diversity and safeguard the lands and waters that sustain life. And so with that core vision in mind, um, we set about starting with our conservation planning, which is as much art and science. Uh, We bring together what we can find for existing data and information on on the biodiversity, but also on the communities that we're working in and start to figure out how we can uh, really work on two aspects of conservation. One is like core habitat for species, Mm -hmm. both plants and animals. And the other is how to link those up. So sometimes we're, we're working to figure out how to connect, say, a provincial park and um, another protected area. And we work generally in the private land that connects those two. So it's, it's kind of like doing a, somewhere between a game of chess and a puzzle to try and put all the pieces uh, together in a way that we can make sure that wildlife has a home in the future. It also sounds like marketing. Do you know what I mean? Like you have, you have to tell that story. You talked about getting all that together, but really what you have to do is pitch a story that will convince people in charge that this is worth saving. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're, what one of the reasons that we, celebrate each property acquisition is so that we can tell our broader story and hope to bring more people that share our vision uh, to support our work. And so what was, what do you think it was that made the difference here in getting this area conserved? Well, it's, it's like baking a cake. You need, you need all of the right ingredients there. Um, Certainly the, the fact that the government of Canada has the natural heritage conservation program um, is a really key component. They've they've made a commitment to increasing Canada's protected areas. Um, we have other incredible long-term uh, foundation partners like the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, the Long Hedge Foundation, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, that all support our work, and then individual donors. So you need that element of the financial side mm-hmm. to align, and you also need... Um, you need the care and attention that's been given to the land over the last four generations um, by the by the family that owned the property, and of course the indigenous communities that have stewarded the lands for millennium. So, so you need to start with those lands that have still retained the the functionality from a a wildlife perspective, and then you need to bring science and art and money together to, <laughs> money, yes. to kind of bring it all into one uh, place where we can have a celebration. So how soon would that be available to the public? I know there'll be walking paths and things. When can the public go see it? Well, our first step now that we are the owners is to do a baseline inventory. So we'll go out and uh, actually do more detailed look at the habitats that are there and use that to inform a management plan. And so our general philosophy with all of our lands is that they are open to the public unless there is a very specific mm-hmm. um, ecological concern that we discover. So typically, you know, there might be some part of the property that's not available. Um, so, it, you know, it could take us a couple of years to get that plan in place, but uh, it could also be sooner than that. So we um, we'll, so. Certainly, we'll certainly keep people uh, informed um, when we're when we're ready to to have that type of access. Cool. All right. We look forward to that. Thank you so much, Nancy. Well, thank you. That Appreciate is Nancy. Interest. Well, I know lots of people would want to go there. That's Nancy Newhouse, the regional VP of the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And they've got a new area in Pemberton, in the Pemberton Valley, that they have just announced is going to be preserved. It's 87 hectares. And pretty soon you'll be able to have public access to that as well. This is Mornings with Simi. 
less wildfire smoke in the air yesterday. This morning, though, starting to look hazy again. It has been an up and down couple of days. We keep hoping that the damper weather, the rain might help us out. And that hasn't quite been the case yet. But we thought let's get an update on the air quality right now. Joining us is Kyle Howe, who's the air quality planner with Metro Vancouver. Kyle, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what's it like out there right now? Right. So I think you're, you're definitely correct here today. We're still seeing high concentrations of fine particulate matter. We did see an improvement yesterday from where we were earlier in the week, but the values that we're seeing are still high and we consider them to be unhealthy. Um, it does look like moving into the weekend that we're going to see a weather system come through that should help us out quite a bit. Um, but until that time, we're still advising people to sort of follow the guidance that we provide in our advisories. Okay. And what is that guidance? So for anybody who has some pre-existing conditions like lung or heart diseases, um, people with acute infections like COVID or the young uh, and elderly, we encourage them to reduce their outdoor activities um, and to seek shelter inside, uh, you know, if they have a HEPA filter or some other filtration device, um, that would certainly help. But it's really about minimizing the amount of activities that you're, you're doing outside and reducing your exposure to the smoke. Yeah, Kyle, do you think sometimes people underestimate the impact that smoke is having? I think it's hard for a lot of people, you know, within the sort of uh, healthy population. Um, I think a lot of people don't quite understand the, the potential impacts that it could have um, on people with some of these pre-existing conditions. But certainly people with asthma and, and other sort of uh, respiratory issues are impacted pretty severely by something like this. And even, you know, sort of anecdotally, people who, who are outside running and, and uh, you know, doing other activities outside certainly feel the impacts uh, of breathing in this smoke. So, I mean, it's affecting the entire population, and it's really important to keep in mind um, to, to sort of check in on yourself and make sure that if you're experiencing any symptoms that, uh, you know, you talk to your doctor and, uh, you know, reduce your activity. So have we had it like this long before in Metro Vancouver? So looking back, uh, we've experienced wildfire events now for three out of the last four years. Uh, right now we're on day 10 of our air quality advisory. Uh, but back in 2017, we did have an 11-day long advisory. And then in 2018, we had a 14-day advisory. Um, I think this year is a little bit more analogous to 2018, um, just with sort of the levels of smoke that we're seeing. Um, but it's certainly not good. And, and especially to see this um, in three out of the four uh, previous years is a very big concern for us. And I'm sure you've been monitoring this very carefully. So do we know when things might substantially improve for us? So, yeah, we've been watching the data very closely. And like I said, I think uh, there's there's a predicted weather system that's going to start moving into the region starting tomorrow. Uh, with that system, we're hoping to see increased westerly winds to help bring in some of that cleaner marine air. And so we should start to see an improvement um, starting tomorrow. And then hopefully by Saturday, things should look much better. Um, but again, we're, we're closely watching the data. Um, these fires are very dynamic and uh, smoke can change very quickly uh, across the region. And so what are the, what's the harmful effects of the smoke then, Kyle? What is in there that causes this problem? So the biggest thing that we're looking at when we talk about smoke is fine, partic- fine particulate matter or PM2.5. And this uh, particulate matter can be inhaled very deep into the lungs. So um, that's really the concern is that this, this uh, particulate matter can go very deep into your body. And this, again, is especially a concern with anybody who has underlying conditions um, and other sort of respiratory issues and acute infections such as COVID-19. Um, so that's the concern with a lot of the smoke. I guess what people probably don't realize is it's why they've probably been breathing a little bit heavier in the last week or so. Yeah, and this is exactly what, what you're feeling is when, when you're out there and you feel like it's a little bit harder to breathe, it's because you're breathing in these very, very tiny particles and they're entering really, really deep into your lung and affecting your ability to actually take a breath. All right, well, fingers crossed this goes away soon. Kyle, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. That is Kyle Howe, an air quality planner with Metro Vancouver. Of course, they're keeping a close eye on this, you know, almost hazardous situation we have outside with the air quality right now. It's still very bad. I know we were hoping that things would get better at this point in the week. That hasn't happened yet, but they are thinking at this point that within the next couple of days where the shift in the winds, which will no longer be winds coming up from the south, pushing that wildfire smoke and switching to more westerly winds, which will bring us some cleaner air, that 
that will make a huge difference for us. So you may not even have thought you were being impacted by this, but I've certainly noticed like a little breathing, a little bit heavier, a little just like wheezier, you know, in the chest, maybe your eyes are a little bit itchy. All of that can be chalked up to the impacts of this wildfire smoke. So hopefully this clears up soon.